You're listening to the Center for Auto Safety podcast with Executive Director Michael Brooks, Chief Engineer Fred Perkins, and hosted by Anthony Simino. For over 50 years, the Center for Auto Safety has been working to make cars safer. Find out more at autosafety.org. So let's start off this week. Well, we've already, you know, let's uh, let's talk about I-95 because this was, I mean, it's horrific. Part of I-95 collapses in Philly due to a fire, not from an electric vehicle, from it seemed like a, a, a fuel tank stopped underneath an overpass. And we don't know yet, I don't think, caught on well, fire and melted the bridge, mm-hmm. melted the road. The latest report I saw says that there was apparently excessive speed, the Gasoline tanker uh, left the road and just the sparks or whatever set it on fire. And uh, unfortunately, it took down the or killed the driver, took down the uh, the highway itself. My daughter pointed something out, though, which is you know, putting aside the, the, the tragedy of the, uh, the driver being killed. In a sense, it was fortunate that it was I-95 in Philadelphia because it's mostly a local highway. All the through traffic is going down the New Jersey Turnpike to get from, um, you know, New York to the Piggly Wiggly down in Atlanta, where they're going to be processing jacks. What a jacks! Um... I have no idea. You mean jacks like you throw a jacks with the ball? No, no, I'm trying to think of the the pork rinds, jacks port rinds. Yeah, oh. come from New York and head some. Anyway. <laughs> So the interstate traffic is is probably okay. This is a big annoyance for the local traffic in Philadelphia, but yeah, it was uh, just a horrible, horrible crash. Mm. Uh, and there's nothing that can be done. I mean, well, I shouldn't say nothing. What can be done to prevent things like that in the future? Because you're listening to There Ought to Be a Law. There Ought to Be a Law. Well, Michael's talked about speed limiters. And yeah, I mean, that's that's one thing, you know, I, I think there's a lot of things that, you know, the trucking industry fights very hard against putting in their vehicles and has for many years. I think if you look, if if we talk about it today, the ProPublica article that's um, talking about the kind of the history of heavy truck underride and how the industry is pushed back against the rear guards, which are now required and have continued to save a number of lives and the side guards, which are not required yet, but probably should be, although the, and the industry continues to raise a lot of roadblocks to getting that done. Um, so it's, it's, you know, there's a lot of, um, a lot of problems there. <laughs> well, let's, let's oh, the, talk about the article. Oh, go on, Fred. I was just going to say the Insurance Institute for Highway Safety, IIHS, uh, predicts that side guards, effective side guards on those trucks would save of the order of 800 lives per year. Seems like a big number to me. And uh, I don't know. Uh, why are they pushing back so hard, Michael? This is just reflexive or they have a real economic case before we well, even get into that let's explain to to listeners what what are you guys talking about with side guards on trucks and the rear guards on trucks um we we have a link to this pro publica article there's an image i think you can get an idea but what yeah and i would encourage listeners to take a look at that um 
article online because it has a lot of you know striking visuals of crashes and what the real issue is here is the height of the the v passenger vehicles versus the height of the tractor trailer um and you'll see images of insurance institute vehicles being tested and you know you're basically coming in to the rear of the semi trailer at head height um, or into the side of it at head height. And so we see devastating injuries and deaths from this type of collision. Um, it's been raised for many, many years. I believe this was the cause of death in Jane Mansfield's um, car crash you know, 60 years ago plus. And it's just never been completely addressed, you know, by either lowering the trailers, which I'm not even sure is possible given those loads or by putting some type of guard in place. The issue that I think we're facing right now in side guards, NHTSA just did a, a cost benefit estimate of, you know, what it would cost to, to put these in per, you know, life saved or injury prevented and it's it's a it's, they're tough numbers um now those are you know you're looking at thousands of dollars going into every one of these vehicles that needs to be upgraded or retrofitted so it's it's a um you know it's it's not quite as clear-cut a case as say automatic emergency braking or something like that where, where, where the calculated benefits that NHTSA has to use just clearly outweigh the um negatives caused by um crashes all of the societal negatives so it's it's something that you know i think we need to figure out whether we figure out a new way for you know maybe the tesla semi is going to figure this out and lower the vehicle and run it on hot wheel tires i don't know there, there's got to be better ways to transport goods that don't people put people at risk basically due to a simple incompatibility in the size and shape of the trailer versus the size and shape of the passenger vehicle. I, I think we've already solved that problem is everyone needs to buy a giant SUV so your road, ride height is higher than the cab on a semi-truck. Problem solved. Well, maybe that's the logic behind these big pickup trucks that we're seeing now. That and laser beams on the front of your car. So if you're in this accident, automatic laser beam deployment shoots open the tractor trailer ideally it's full of kettle corn and you get cooked kettle corn too as you drive past oh, plus if you look at a cyber cyber truck it looks like it would just wedge <laughs> right under the right under the trailer and push it up over you and it's made out of stainless steel so maybe that's why people are plunking down a hundred dollars for those things which are three years late now well, uh, there's a lovely article in Ars Technica, which you have a link to. Um, basically, the leaked Tesla report, talking about Cybertruck, leaked Tesla report shows Cybertruck had basic design flaws. Uh, no kidding. Okay, I don't know if a few people have seen a drawing of the Cybertruck, but it looks like a four-year-old came up with a design and said, look, mommy, aren't you proud? And mommy would be like, you're a genius as a four-year-old, but as uh, a car company, it's just silly and as a truck just these weird angles like the thing with a truck is you want to make it easy for people to put loads inside the truck bed this has some weird angles it's stainless steel as michael was pointing out um i don't know i mean fred how does stainless steel do in a in a in crash testing like i, I mean we have crumple zones like most of our cars the fronts are there's steel 
structures in there that are designed to give way, but a lot of it's plastic and things like that that are designed to crumple and slow down the impact. Stainless. Right. Well, there's a perimeter for steel called ductility, uh-huh. which is which has. It does not have anything to do with feathered animals. It means that it's the ability of the steel to stretch and bend without breaking. And what you want to have in a crumple zone is ductile steel that will bend and deform to absorb the energy that's uh, involved in the crash. Stainless steel is not particularly particularly ductile, so it means that you have a lot of limitations in how you're going to shape it and form it and in its response to dissipating energy in a crash. So that's the that's the real problem. It looks the Cybertruck looks as weird as it does because you have a lot of limitations in forming the panels that you simply don't have with the ductile steel that's used for side panels in a car, for example, where you know you've got a big press that squeezes it into shape. Does that make sense? Weight issue with with stainless steel as well is it gonna, i mean it's probably going to be heavier than carbon fiber or some other aluminum. materials right well it's really the same problem because the stainless steel isn't as ductile so you can't uh you can't form it as well into into very thin shapes and still have the structural rigidity or still have the structural strength that you need for the panels to resist you know normal things people sitting on the car or, or what have you kind of things that can deform in the panels and so this article uh, has some uh, basically quotes from engineers walk, working on this that say that it's failing basic things around noise and vibration and other people in the auto in motive industry comment that this is really surprising because this is problems we've all solved, you know, 50 years ago. Why is a new car today running into these problems? So for those of you, put your hundred dollars down. I don't know. Uh, yeah. Well, none of whom are farmers. Um <laughs> None of which is listening to this show unless I mean, they keep listening the cyber truck just looks like an angry dishwasher to me it's it's it's, it's a lot <laughs> it came out of minecraft that's totally what it looks like it's the minecraft aesthetic I mean, there's a minecraft aesthetic sure there is come on hmm. Hmm. that's interesting i thought minecraft was the opposite of aesthetic but that's just me hey you know art is something i, I tried to play it once and it wasn't wasn't very much fun the first time. It's kind of like golf. I tried that once and it didn't work out for me either. Is the windmill really gotten your way? No, I <laughs> used to work on windmills, but that's a different story. Oh my god! <laughs> um, all right, so we're jumping around a bit. Let's uh, let's let's talk serious, um, shall we? So Fred just sent this one. Or I, yeah, I think Fred, you just sent this around this morning about uh, electric vehicles and the electrical grid. And this was fascinating to me. It talks about how the auto industry moving to electric vehicles is not talking to the utility industries that supply this stuff. And I think in my mind, well, what does that matter? The article points out that the fuel industry, the gasoline industry, has a tight-knit relationship with auto manufacturers, which makes sense. Hey, how does your product work? How does your product work? Let's make them work better. This article points out that the electrical grid starting in the mid-90s, they noticed some horrible things happening. As soon as everyone's air conditioners kick on, you get something called voltage sag. Fred will correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, so power drops. So these uh, air conditioners will say, hey, give me more power. And they all try and do it the same thing at once, and it winds up crashing the grid. And so their utility engineers, electrical utility engineers, are worried this is going to happen when 
everyone plugs in their EVs, what's going to happen? Are these going to say, hey, I'm, I'm running low on power, give me more and crash the grid? And they're having a tough time finding who the engineers are to talk to about this issue. So, so well, it's kind of, it's really a micro versus a macro issue. Um, and it, as always, gets back to physics. So if you have an electric motor and you turn on the electric motor, the first thing it does is it absorbs electric power from the grid and then starts to turn. Um, every power source voltage drops when you put a load on it. And the immediate load when you start an electric motor is very large because, well, it has to be because it's starting up, there's inertia to overcome, there's conductors and all that. But the other thing that happens in an electric motor is that as it starts to spin, it generates reverse voltage in a sense. It's called reverse EMF because the same thing that causes uh, electricity to, to be generated when you spin a rotor in electric current is happening as the motor picks up speed. So it, not only does it absorb energy from the grid to start, it starts to generate backwards electrical energy as it starts to spin. So you can see that there's a balance that occurs. And as it reaches full speed, then the amount of power it's absorbing from the grid is balanced by the amount of electric power that's is sending back to the grid. Does that make sense? There's a kind of a balance there. So, on you. so th there are two consequences of this that are important for this discussion. One is that when they all start at the same time, you have an incredible amount of power that's being absorbed from the grid. Now, the grid is relatively large. Oh, I'm sorry. The second issue is that if you stop the motor suddenly, it injects a lot of electric power back into the grid. You've got to dissipate that somehow. It's got to, it's got to be absorbed by the grid for that same reason. You've got a spinning rotor in a magnetic field. There's just a lot of energy in there. So that's got to go somewhere. So the problem that arises is if, if the grid is large and the electric motor loads are small, it's really not a problem because the grid can absorb the, the fluctuations in power that are caused by the electric motor starting and stopping. The problem is when you have a lot of electric motors and they become more or less the same scale as the electric generating system itself, if they all start and stop at the same time, then you can overwhelm the power available in the system and circuit breakers start to pop and things happen. If if you're the kind of person that I was as a kid and stick electric wires into electrical outlets to see what's going to happen, <laughs> um, you'll see that the circuit breakers do their job and they trip, okay, because you've got too much current coming through the wire. It's designed that way to protect idiot kids like me who are sticking wires into the outlets. But the problem is th that it's not designed to continually deliver power and also absorb all the energy that's that's uh, caused by idiots sticking wi wires into outlets or alternatively air conditioners being all turned on at the same time, uh, which is the same physical phenomenon as the idiot kid. So that's what's going on. Now the question is, uh, well, you could say, well, that, but you know, that's not a problem because these are all going to be operating intermittently and it's not going to all happen at the same time. So What's the problem? It turns out that there are times when it does all happen for whatever reason. 
at the same time and does in fact overwhelm the system. There's some historical examples of that. The problem that is being articulated here is that if everybody comes home from work at the same time, a la Simpsons, drives their car into the garage, plugs it in, jumps in front of the TV, that's a huge a, that's a huge power load coming in that needs to be compensated by the electrical grid and the systems associated with that. If everybody does that at the same time, then you're going to have a situation where you're sucking tremendous amount of power out of the grid all at the same time. It becomes the equivalent to the idiot kids sticking the wires into the outlet. You just have way too much current coming through. The system is designed to interrupt the power if you overload the system because they don't want the utility wires to burst into flames, which only makes sense. <clears throat> so that's the problem that that is being anticipated here. And the author was saying, well, we don't know if this is going to happen or not. We don't know sure. what the requirements are. We don't know how long the uh, EVs that are charging are going to have excessive loads coming in, excessive needs for power. And nobody is thinking about that. Nobody is thinking about the electrical requirements that are needed by the needed to be implemented by the electric vehicle manufacturers in order to sustain the safety of the electrical grid, make sure that they don't become the equivalent of, you know, 10 million idiot kids sticking wires into the outlet. So that's, that's the problem. And there's no solution just yet. People are not talking to each other because who do you call? There's no ghostbusters in this situation. And the, the manufacturers don't appear of, of automobiles don't appear to be incentivized to <clears throat> cooperate with the folks in charge of the grid. They just want to sell cars and they leave it up to them cars, to right. figure it out, right? That's the job. That's, and, you know, people talk about silos and uh, tunneling of engineering, but these are all engineering silos that people work in because that's what they get paid to do. They get paid to solve the problem of how to plug in the car and charge the batteries. They don't get paid to solve the problem of how do you preserve the electrical grid against the demand of the electric vehicles. I, I imagine, though, that the uh, EV charging companies like the Supercharger Network and EV America, that they'd want to work with the auto companies because the and the auto company engineers would be like, hey, what's the fastest way I can get charge out of your system? I imagine they'd want to work together on that to say, hey, now we can charge 5% faster if we use EV America or some network like that. And then you're also having kind of having the charging networks. They would want to be going back to the grid and being like, hey, how do we pull this kind of stuff without destroying our business? But I'm yeah. just being optimistic, aren't I? Well, I mean, you I don't know. I guess we'll see once there's a big major blackout mm -hmm. that's proven to be attributable to, to EVs, right? And what the response is. Um, well, today, it's still a micro versus macro problem. An individual charging station is still a micro problem for any grid. Uh, by the way, it's not the grid. There are several grids. Texas right. stands alone and <laughs> West Coast stands alone. And, and the East Coast is all uh, divided up into lots and lots of grids. So, you know, that that's important too. But all of these are macro considerations that need to be addressed and um, need to be addressed soon if people are going to be putting up the charging stations all over the country as is motivated by the current legislation. And so if I think if you're an engineer working on this issue, if you work for an auto company, there's at least a couple of you out there, we know it. Um, contact your local grid operator and be like, hey, um, how do we work together better? It's, I don't imagine it's a long 
drawn out year long conversation. I imagine it's just kind of, Hey, I got your contact info. You got mine. We can start talking. Hey, did you donate to the Center for Auto Safety? I did. Oh, I didn't yet. I'm going to do that now. Walk me through it. Oh, you go to autosafety.org and you click on the support us donate now button. That's so cool. Great. I really like the way your alternating current works. I like the way your alternating current works. This is getting very strange now. Uh, So is America ready for EVs? This is an article in the Wall Street Journal, um, the paper of record. Uh, uh, and it's uh, talking about uh, the issues that the current generation, which is really, let's be honest, the first generation of EVs is running into software glitches, uh, inaccurate range estimates and things that are scaring people off um, uh, with that. I mean, it's what we're just talking about of of uh, what kind of charging plug do I use? How do I access a charging network? Uh, the big thing I always see with EVs is people who are not using Tesla's network is always complain that their EV charge point or EV electrify America, the systems are down. Um, and now it looks like GM and Ford have said, Hey, we're going to skip the, what the rest of the world uses for charging plugs. We're going to use what Tesla uses. Um, and it sounds and feels like to me, like uh, Apple's proprietary charging thing for your phone versus what the rest of the world uses. I don't know if there's an engineering need for this. If there's some thing from a consumer's point of view, I look at it and go smaller is better. Wait, what? Yeah. The smaller cable system seems better than, than the large clunky thing. But I, I don't know. Gentlemen, is, is America ready for some EVs? Well, the, the, you know, the one thing in the article that's kind of, we're all it's all happening to all of us whether we have an ev or not is software problems um that's kind of unconnected to the ev that although evs do typically have more electronics and more stuff going on in the in the brains uh because they are trying to appeal to a you know more technically advanced segment of our population in most cases so um this the software issue applies to everyone um some of the other issues involved are specifically EV issues. And one of them that's, you know, we talk about quite a bit is the range and range anxiety. And, and one of the things that we worry about is whether we're going to use advances in battery technology to give people cars that can go a thousand miles without a charge or reduce their weight to, to make outcomes and crashes better for everyone. Um, at this point, you know, I think we're all aware that the charging structure is inadequate. That's something that was provided for in the Infrastructure Act a couple of years ago. They're rapidly expanding America's charging infrastructure. Um, whether or not that's the best way to go, you know, we've talked about battery swapping and other things. Uh, it's it's really undecided yet. Um, I think this is the way America's going to go is, is a, a rapid, uh, you know, large charger network versus battery swapping which might make more sense from some perspectives um but that's certainly a problem as they point out um and then you know there there's always the issue and and particularly i guess if you're renting a vehicle on vacation and you're not familiar with your you know your charging stations and it's it can be difficult to do i, I think that when you're looking at 
EVs, you really need to plan your trips uh, probably a lot better than you do when you have uh, an ICE vehicle because you're going to have to know. With, with, with internal combustion engine, you know you're going to run across a gas station sooner or later unless you're in some really far, you know, remote areas of the country where there may be 100 miles or more between a gas station. But you know that. With the EVs, you really need to make sure that, you know, because the estimates of range can vary, you know, you can't really get in the vehicle and rely on it to go a certain distance with a certain uh, amount of power because there are variations due to due to weather and temperatures and things that can affect the range. So there's a lot of planning involved. And so it is a it's you know, it's a it's a new type of driving for many. And, 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 and if you're going to invest in EV or drive an EV or use an EV, you're going to have to, um, you know, there's a little bit of a learning curve around charging and range that that everyone should, you know, take the time to uh, understand before putting themselves into a potential bother. The range estimate also strikes me as a software issue right now. It just they haven't written algorithms that are smart enough i mean our cars do it like my ice vehicle has hey this is how many miles you can go um and it's doing an estimate based off of my current speed um if i start going faster it will drop hey this is how far you can go if i go slower it will increase it uh it doesn't they're not huge wild swings so i can't imagine that somebody could write a a clever little algorithm for an ev being like hey it's a winter outside so Maybe we'll drop the range estimate here, and it looks like we're at this altitude. They know where you are, so we're going to change this range here versus it being a warm summer day, and it looks like... And I already know your route, because that's the thing is in these EVs, you're essentially telling it where you're going, so it knows your route. It should know the inclination, declination that you're going. Maybe. I mean, are you are you telling your EV where you're going? You might be telling an AV where you're going, but an EV is, you know... You can still use ways and not tell your car a thing. Well, I mean, but the thing is, like, that's the thing is, like, you're telling your phone, like, hey, where, how do I get to the nearest Piggly Wiggly? And so your phone, I mean, it's, they, they should know. This I, sounds I expensive. No, it doesn't yeah. sound that expensive. <laughs> no, I mean, they just make better guesses and just, you know, set aside 5% as padding or something. I don't know. Fred, you're an engineer. What do you think? I think you're talking about a, a conflict between marketing and engineering. Yeah, I know. I know. Uh, I think it's difficult for marketing purposes for the companies to be forthright about limitations on the on the range. You know, uh, you keep reading articles about people who are doing exploratory trips. Uh, A couple of years ago, it was a trip from Washington to New York, if I remember right, or Washington to Boston in the Wall Street Journal, and this was a trip from New York to Montreal. Right. Maybe it's the thrill of exploration that people like. Maybe it's the whole idea of casting yourself into the wilderness and hoping for a good outcome. Maybe that's what this is all about. You know, aspirational ideas of adventure. But from the engineering perspective, if you knew the destination, you understand the weather conditions going back and forth, you understand how uh, nice the roads are and bumps and inclination and declination and all those good things, yeah, you could do that, I would think, but uh, it can get complicated and it would be inaccurate. And I think from a marketing perspective, you're better off just leaving that out of your out of your console. Yeah, but for a consumer, I, I'd want to know. And it, I, I, you can, I imagine you can get it as close, as accurate as your fuel estimate range in an ICE vehicle. 
maybe not as quite, but because my fuel cup, my car doesn't know how much weight I have in it. It's not doing that for its for its fuel range calculation. It's not tracking my route. It's just saying, hey, this is how fast you're going. We assume this is what we're going to do. And sure. Your trip, it says range computer said you got 60 miles for the gallon. And I'm like, no, I didn't. Well, it's also inaccurate. Yes. Uh, yeah, I, I have a lot of hills where I live. And I notice when I go down the hill, it's always telling me that it's 99.9 miles per gallon. When I'm coming up the hill, it tells me that it's about 10 miles per gallon. So you'd say that on average I should be getting about fifty miles per gallon, right? Ten on the way, ten on the way up, a hundred on the way down. But that's not the way the aggregate works out. So there's, I think there's a lot of built-in inaccuracies, and whether or not that's intentional or just difficult to estimate, I don't know the answer to that. I do know that the range estimates are all wrong, sometimes uh, independent of what the instant mileage estimates are I, I think you just solved the climate problem there everyone just go downhill uh, yeah. drive downhill will reduce fuel consumption it would be good yeah now for some more nonsense we talked about this and i don't think it was toyota a while back but the fake shifting fake shifting sounds in electric vehicles was it was it toyota the last time because this is toyota uh toyota's engineers are wasting their time on putting in fake shifting sounds and roaring engine sounds into their electric vehicles. And on top of, and they want to have it give you the feel of driving, uh, which is absurd, but yeah, give you the feel of driving, whatever that means, including, Hey, if you, you shift incorrectly in a car that doesn't have gears and need to be shifted, uh, we can stall you out. Like they're contemplating the like, and the fact this comes out to a news article, cause this is really a two in the morning, conversation with engineers who are a little punchy and we're like hey we'll make the ev stall yeah let's give it a blown head casket sound <laughs> let's have the radiator overheat like it's <clears throat> it's hilarious at two in the morning but for some reason toyota's pr team has no sense of humor and said hey we'll tell people and it's not even their pr team it was their head of ev engineering who has no sense of humor and was like oh, this is what the guys told me uh yeah, we'll we'll make it so we could stall the car. What? Why? Well, well the market the market works in funny ways. Uh, I, my understanding and what I've read is that BMW has been doing this for a long time with their EVs because there's a characteristic sound of a for a BMW, mm -hmm. and they want to preserve that characteristic sound with their electric vehicles. So they pump noise through their radio so that it sounds like it's got pistons and it's doing the BMW thing. So I, I actually like this idea because it's a good way of discriminating among different classes of vehicles. So you could have, uh, for example, in a small vehicle, you could say that the automatic shifting or the manual shifting is is a, kind of a dog shift maneuver. And then in a bigger car, you could say, well, you know, this is a, this is this is a horse shift maneuver because uh, you know my my medium-sized EV is, is actually total horse shift. And then for the really big EVs, like the Hummer's 9,000 pounds, hazard to everybody and destroying bridges, you can say that that's a total bull shift. And I, I really like those categories. I, I caught on to what you were doing there. Well, what? What do you mean? <laughs> uh, this is just something where I'm, I, 
it it upsets me because these are very smart engineers and they're wasting their time on garbage. You know, the the stalling part of it just can't be put on the market. That's a defect as soon as it is. So I I, I and literally they they I don't know if they wanted to create just the feel of stalling with the system or if they were actually stalling the vehicle to give you the experience. It was a little unclear in the article, but either way that seems like a problem, right? It seems ridiculous i mean the the feel of stalling what what do they do they change the climate system to give you flop sweat yeah i mean they're doing more than just noise in, in the toyota they're doing an actual feel and I, that raises an issue for me i mean if you're receiving feedback from the vehicle that's false right does that ch- i mean that's obviously going to change your, your your calculations for how you continue operating the vehicle what manner you know how whether you're hitting the accelerator and what you're doing is going to be impacted by the information you're receiving about the vehicle state. So I think there's, you know, the, the, the potential here, if, if they're not careful in how they implement this to, to give drivers, you know, false information about their, their, the way their vehicles operating. And that couldn't, that could be unsafe. I had a Volkswagen once 1960 Volkswagen bug that did not have a, a, a fuel gauge in it. And the way those operated was they had a little reserve tank. And so you would drive down the road um, as happily as can be until all of a sudden the engine stalled. Then you had to lunge under the dashboard and manually turn the valve to open up the reserve tank and then restart the engine using the inertia of the car uh, to continue your trip. And then, you know, you needed to get to a gas station. I really like this idea for EVs that they were just, you know, spontaneously stop running and you'd have to lunge under the dashboard and flip a switch to, you know, recreate that feel of the 1960s love bug. I I would love that. That would be a really fun thing. That and, and, and the crank for the Ford Model T, that's the one I really want. That'd be a great way to get started. Put a little electric generator on there. It'd be like those old time movies of people blowing up the railroad tracks, you know, where they had to crank up the, crank up the mechanism and then plunge the plunger down and, then the rails would explode. I, I really like that idea, Michael. That's a good suggestion. For those of you just tuning in, you are listening to the Center for Auto Safety podcast. <laughs> with a plethora of bad auto safety ideas. Continuing with Toyota, uh, Toyota's been getting beat up because they're like, we're not doing electric vehicles. This is a bad idea. Um, and they're not really saying what they're doing. The rest of the industry and the rest of the world saying, tough, we are doing it. So Toyota's recently clarified their electric vehicle offerings. They currently have one car on the road. Um, ugly, not very Toyota-like at all, and apparently not very good, uh, which is surprising because Toyota is kind of known for making cars that will last a really long time and are practical and good. So Toyota comes out and says, uh, hey, uh, this is what we're going. We're going to have solid state batteries by 2028, which is a pretty aggressive move because as far as I can tell, these solid state batteries have yet to leave a lab. Um, well, maybe they're just getting into this whole line of if I'm going to make EVs, I just have to bullshit consumers <laughs> to get sales. <laughs> Toyota is not Elon Musk. Come on. That's that's why I'm saying it's it's, you know, they're not. They're not one of the BS companies, okay? They generally not 
do anything, say anything crazy. You own a Toyota, Anthony. Let's be honest here. You need to, you need to disclose your affiliation to the listeners. Yes. I paid them money to, for a a little car that I hope will last forever because I never afford another. Well, I bought a Toyota minivan once. Remember those old minivans? Sure. And it had a, it had a built in air conditioner. Or uh, a, a, window a six pack unit, of soda. Window unit you'd put <laughs> and after and after and, and it also had inadequate brakes. So after <laughs> after driving that van for a couple of years, I really believe that Toyota does in fact have a sense of humor. <laughs> well, so they say they're coming out with solid state batteries, uh, but they're first they're gonna start with the iron phosphor batteries. Um do we what what are the, what are our, our thoughts on this? On oh, Toyota? my thought was that there was a mention of a battery that will get you to nine hundred and thirty two miles. So we're almost already crossing the thousand mile barrier with some of this nonsense. <laughs> um, you know, the solid state batteries, if they can get them into vehicles by twenty twenty eight, I would be very impressed because while there seem to be a lot of research and and you know, just a lot of press around solid state batteries. I, I haven't seen any evidence that someone's going to be getting them into cars in the next two or three years. And, you know, five years is not a long time away for, for the manufacturers. They're already designing vehicles that are going to come out in 2028. So um, we'll watch that as a developing story. Solid state batteries are great. They weigh less and they don't catch on fire, apparently. So that's something we really want to come and soon. But are they the Blu-ray of batteries? Or, hey, it sounds great. No one ever bought it. You guys both have Blu-ray players, didn't you? I, I just yeah. got rid of mine not too long ago, as a matter of fact. Yeah. So uh, I do know about that. I, I think that the battery technology is advancing very rapidly. <clears throat> it's advancing in the right direction. It'll have a lot of impact on a lot of things that need to store energy. So I, I actually applaud this initiative by Toyota, whether or not it's just throwing smoke into the eyes of all the people who are thinking of electric vehicles right now and saying, well, in the future, everything will be better. So you should hold on for a few years. I don't have the answer to that. I'd be surprised if there's not some of that involved in this marketing initiative. But ultimately, uh, they're headed in the right direction. They will be safer. They will be lighter. Uh, hopefully, they'll be able to deliver on that schedule. So keep our fingers crossed. And hopefully they talk to engineers at your local utility grid so we can all work together nicely. Continuing his criminal enterprise, Kyle from Cruz. (laughs) Can I call it a criminal enterprise? I am. I did. Well, I I can't. Well, you know, (laughs) I I thought you were going to be talking about me again, but it's nice nice to have the focus shifted. Thank you. I clearly the listeners understand everything comes out of my mouth is parody and protected under the law. So, uh, Kyle Cruz, their, uh, their car is still in San Francisco, still on the street, still without anybody behind the wheels. And now they're blocking the road and preventing the police from getting to shootings. Boy, you gotta love this company and their technology. Of course, Cruz comes out and says, none of this happened. This isn't true. And the internet responds with, here's video footage of it. And the police department responded very calmly and said, we're investigating this. 
you know, it doesn't even matter if this one incident is true or not. I mean, there we've seen dozens of other incidents, and I'm sure the folks in San Francisco can name way more than we can, where these vehicles have interfered with their daily patterns, their commute, caused congestion, prevented emergency vehicles from getting where they're going, threatened to run over fire hoses, not responded to officers, hit buses, trolleys, you know, the list goes on. And I think that a lot of those incidents could be completely avoided if you put a safety driver in the vehicles and, you know, we keep seeing the circumstance. I think it happened, you know, on Good Morning America or one of the national news shows when they when they were looking at it, when they were riding in a cruise vehicle, it stopped and they had to call an engineer who takes, you know, up to half an hour to come out and rectify the situation and move the vehicle so that traffic behind it can move again. That just sounds stupid to me. Get a safety driver in these cars. Um, California, I, I believe, is going to be requiring them in the heavy trucks and the semis that are that are going to be deployed. Um, and San Francisco's experience is just, you know, just just ignoring the fact that having a safety driver in these vehicles to take over when there's a critical safety incident where a human needs to respond. Taking that out of the question, just the congestion and the giant pain in the ass that these cars are causing on the streets could be alleviated with a safety driver. So why don't they just put a safety driver in the vehicles? You know, I think it's going back to, you know, kind of they want to show their in shareholders and their investors that these cars can drive without a person in them. And that's the only reason. I, I mean, I, I can't think of another reason, certainly from a liability perspective, you probably want a safety driver in the car. I mean, that they really want to show these vehicles transporting passengers without a driver in the car. So at this point, you know, it's it might be a battle getting, you know, requiring a safety driver in California. You're taking on, you know, Waymo and um, which is Google, which is Google and companies that have a lot of political sway in that state. Um, and so it's it's, you know, we may not get a safety driver back in these cars. And I think that's going to be a huge loss going forward. And I, I think it's something that the DOT and NHTSA really need to take a look at and establish federal standards to make sure that they're safety drivers. I don't think there's I don't think we can rely on states doing the right thing when they're surrounded by lobbyists from the industry all the time lying to them. Well, as we've spoken about numerous times, NHTSA has a lot of issues it's got to deal with. Um, <laughs> so we, we talked about it last week briefly, the uh, the NHTSA Office of Inspector General report and how they're doing really badly at rulemaking, at enforcing things, of coming up with things. And so... Uh, how do you pronounce the name? Rodella? Rodella. Rodella resigned last week from NHTSA to go work for, <laughs> wait for it, wait for it, Zooks. Zooks, the silliest looking car that is definitely not crash worthy at all. So yeah, Zooks is, that's an interesting situation for a lot of reasons. I mean, we, we, I, I don't know that that's why. Mr. Rodella left NHTSA. It was very, you know, maybe the timing was just coincidental. Uh, who knows? But you know, he he was overseeing enforcement at that agency and um, which includes compliance enforcement. And, you know, Zooks is under active investigation for certifying their vehicles, certifying that they comply with federal motor vehicle safety standards when there's some pretty serious questions about that. Um, and I'm just wondering, you know, it's is 
you know, what happens there? You know, do you recuse yourself from those issues while you're at the agency? Do you recuse yourself from them when you move to Zooks? Or, you know, is this just the typical and it's a revolving door scenario? You know, obviously, this isn't the first person that's moved to or from NHTSA from um, industry. And Mr. Riddella himself, I believe, moved over from TRW, which is an equipment manufacturer, airbags, I believe, and other things to NHTSA and is now moving to Zooks. So, you know, this it happens a lot. We think there probably, you know, not even probably, there should be rules around, you know, the type of work people can do when they're moving to the government or from the government um, so that there aren't, you know, clear conflicts of interest um, that take place that put the public at risk. Um, in this situation, you know, it, it kind of smells. Uh, Zooks appears to be, you know, buying up a couple of NHTSA, influential NHTSA people here and there. Um, and, you know, maybe they're serious about trying to keep this vehicle that's not quite certified on the road. We're not sure yet, but that's something we're certainly interested in looking into as that investigation develops. Um, but the other thing here that, you know, from our perspective, NHTSA's Office of Defects Investigation has turned into a black hole in the past uh, eight, nine years or so. Um, and, you know, I don't know if we can put it at one person's feet. Uh, if Radella was involved in that, I'm sure there are, there's some involvement there, but there's also some bad Supreme Court cases that came down on confidentiality and some other factors at play. But, you know, NHTSA's, the, the, the Office of Inspector General report really honed in on that problem. And it's something that's plagued uh, NHTSA's defect investigations for years now, you know, 10 years ago, we weren't happy with what NHTSA was doing 10 years ago, but what NHTSA was doing in this space 10 years ago was m far better than what they're doing now. Um, they're not getting documents into their investigation docket for many, many months. And in some cases, many, many years after they've been submitted by manufacturers. And it really gives the public, it gives the Center for Auto Safety and other safety groups far less information to work on, to work with when we're looking into these safety issues because NHTSA is basically uh, a black hole. I mean, and, and we see it with the Tesla investigations that have been going on forever and don't seem to be getting anywhere. You know, the, the autopilot full self-driving are still out there actively killing emergency responders and motorcyclists and others and injuring many more. And we don't see any movement from NHTSA. And we have no way of really tracking what the hell they're doing because they're not posting documents or updates to the investigation in a manner that allows us to keep up with what's going on. So it's I'm hoping that that situation is rectified maybe by following the, the numerous recommendations um, that the inspector general put out. They also put out a number of recommendations on the timetables we're seeing in, 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 in safety investigations. They're taking way, way, way too long. And, you know, when an investigation into a recall takes eight years instead of two and you reach the same conclusion, then you've got a six year gap there where, you know, people are still exposed to the risk. And we'd love to see the timetables shortened immensely on the NHTSA investigations. And we think that the best way to do that is to give NHTSA a lot more money so that they can compete and hire good vehicle engineers, software engineers, a lot of different staffers that they've never had in that building before from a perspective, you know, 
20 years ago, it was a lot of mechanical engineers and software was a new thing. Now it's everywhere and they need that expertise and they need a lot more money to compete in that market. Isn't part of the problem that the government separated the, in some sense, the investigation from the regulation? They've got the National Transportation Safety Board, which provides a lot of detailed recommendations for improving safety on the roads. These are routinely ignored by the folks at NHTSA. Uh, what's, what's the cause of that? Does NHTSA have a dual role in both promoting and regulating uh, motor vehicles? That's, they they shouldn't, but, you know, it's certainly, uh, uh, I would say, an accusation that's been leveled at them before, being too cozy with manufacturers. And, and there was some of that actually in the Inspector General report where NHTSA staff were literally saying, you know, we really need to work hard to improve our relationships and continue our relationships with manufacturers. Now, that might sound a little weird, but the manufacturers have the knowledge advantage over all of us who who look at the auto industry they they know what's in all their confidential documents in their tests and you know they 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 and NHTSA has to have a relationship with them a good example is you know i'm not sure how good of a relationship you can have with tesla at this point but you know tesla has a lot of software in its vehicles that you can't NHTSA can't just take a tesla and reverse engineer it and figure it out they have to get tesla's you know uh technical input in order to figure out what these defects are what's going on in the car why is this happening they can't just do that on their own and so cooperation with manufacturers is and always will be i think really important and a, a big part of NHTSA's job but i think that sometimes we see when you see you know the, the revolving door that we have here and you see the chummy relationship sometimes it's built between um certain oh he froze just at that point he was so animated his hand. He was getting. He was getting right to the climax too. Sometimes Michael, when I'm we, having we to think it. really hard, my my hands move. I, I I love it, but the problem is you were just this. this you were doing this Marceau Marceau impression of being frozen over Zoom. <laughs> uh, that was my that was my internet connection there. So you know, in a nutshell, that's a do do better on transparency and and finish your investigations quicker. Yeah. There you go, Nitsa. And and look at that. You heard Michael say you should have more money in your budget. Look at that. Yeah, that's that's a must, you know. Yeah. That means request more money when it comes time. And I found a way to get you more money. Congestion pricing. <laughs> Are we ready for the towel of Fred? Let's go. Okay. This week it's gonna be congest congestion mm -hmm. price. Oh my god. This week, it's going to be congestion pricing, which I love because it's first going to happen in New York City, where I live. And my favorite part of this is the people of New Jersey hate it. <laughs> Take it away, Fred. You've now entered the Dow of Fred. Well, congestion pricing is something people have talked about for a long time, and it's actually being implemented in a beautiful city called Copenhagen with very beneficial results you know the the heart of this is that people talk about freedom <laughs> and yet every time they talk about freedom in relation to cars they are saying well i want to be free to enclose myself in a metal box that's very large very expensive 
uh, hard to move around a city and then I have to find a place to park for it. And so I'm going to circle the block four times. That's a strange kind of freedom. And congestion pricing is really all about providing people with alternatives to move within a city uh, without crippling the transportation system. Uh, the approach that has been talked about in New York so far, and you're an expert, Anthony, correct me if I'm wrong, yes. is kind of a you to use a bludgeon to say, well, everybody who's downtown between nine o'clock and three o'clock is going to have to pay extra. And don't worry, we'll read your license plate and send you the bill and, you know, everything will be fine. And people don't kind of like that because that's a big brother approach. Uh, Copenhagen took a, a very different approach, which is to first get buy-in from people on the parameters that would be allowed to be considered within their congestion pricing approach. And they've come up with a you know wonderful matrix that, that talks about not only the costs of the transportation as it exists today, but also the benefits that could be accrued to people um, if they look at certain alternatives, like using a lot of bicycles rather than using a lot of cars. Bicycles are a lot smaller and cheaper, and by the way, they you know if you're able to use them, you'll probably end up being healthier. Uh, I see the same thing in Japan when I was over there. You know, a lot, a lot of bicycles. People use the bicycles to interact with the public transportation system, huge parking lots with, you know, just thousands of bicycles in them. Uh, okay, so what do you do when it rains? Well, in Japan, they put on waterproof gear and they put an umbrella up over their head. Um, they ride down the street with that. It's a little, little different. And how do they accomplish that in Japan? Well, they use bigger sidewalks and people share the sidewalks uh, with pedestrians and the bicycles. It works. They move, you know, many, many more people through the cities using far less public, uh, far less, far fewer, I should say, vehicles than uh, is in any American city. The problem that arises is not that people don't like it because they do like it. The problem that arises isn't that they can't do it because they can do it. The problem is we have invested so heavily in a very heavily subsidized surface transportation system based on the automobile that we would now have to take a look at it and look at some alternatives to that look at you know maybe we don't need all these parking spaces maybe we could take away these parking spaces and use bicycles you first got to get people to agree to use the bicycles and you've got to you know look at the angry people who are going to say i need a parking space damn it so, you know, you've got to provide the alternatives for people to move around because they still want to do that, while at the same time moving people away from the current transportation system to a different mode. That's going to require investment. We've, we've talked about that before. You know, there's no free lunch here. But if you value the real estate in a city properly and you don't say it's got to be committed to vehicles and you say well you know each square foot in downtown new york city is worth x what is the best way to, for the public to get value out of that very valuable real estate is it to use it for a car where you're going to get you know a buck and a half every 30 minutes to park the car or are you going to use it to move 100 people through that same space in the same time using some other kind of transportation system like bicycles or buses or or what have you. Where, I think these are parking space in New York that only costs a dollar fifty for every half hour. Because I haven't I haven't been there in a while. I, <laughs> it's 
What is going right now? I know Washington's up around. Uh, uh, I think a parking garage would charge you like ten bucks minimum. Yeah, when and say hi. You don't even park there. You just drive past to like give us ten bucks. So I undervalued the real estate there, but you know, still the the point remains that there are alternative uses for that real estate besides the commitment and the subsidy for uh, conventional vehicles. Also, the the whole idea of trailer trucks being bumper to bumper along the streets in the city and you know in the garment district or what have you, loading or unloading. Uh, there's got to be a better way to, of doing that. There's got to, and and there are better ways of doing that, but they require the investment in the system. You know, we have long in this country tried to externalize the cost of public assets to the private sector by saying, well, we'll build a highway, but it's up to you guys to build the trucks and trains and and cars and vehicles that are going to be using those highways. So that public investment is a, is a significant subsidy for all of these surface vehicles that are congesting the streets. Um, if the investment were deployed in a different way to get the goods and people in and out of the city without having to use the vehicles, ultimately you would end up with a, a you know a cleaner, quieter, more livable city. But it's going to be a battle getting there because you know we heavily committed in the last century to this whole automobile orientation. And I we're still we're still headed down that road with the EVs and the AVs, all trying to put technological band-aids on a system that was inherently poorly designed. I think New York is a great test case for this because there is, if you're, so I was joking about the commuters from New Jersey being upset about this, but if you live in New Jersey and you commute into New York for work, first of all, what century is it? Everybody's working from home. Um, but secondly, there is amazing mass transit options. It's, you know, there's bus systems, there's a subway system, there's ferries, there is everything to get you in and out of Manhattan. No problem. It's much easier. You don't have to go looking for, you know, parking and it's cheaper. So I think this is a good case of cutting down on an unnecessary convenience. Oh my God. Did I just become a little fascistic there? Is that, that's very anti-American, isn't it? Yeah. Well, why do you hate freedom, Anthony? I mean, well, come on, let's let's be fair about this. It's just freedom of New Jerseyans. <clears throat> yeah, you know, there's there's no need for you if you live in Hoboken, get on the train, okay? If you live anywhere where you have to commute into New York City, and you're not carrying eighteen thousand pounds of concrete. Get on the subway or, or, or plumbing supplies or, you know, there are many. Right. There, there, there's definitely commercial uses where it's absolutely necessary. Like my UPS driver. I mean, I don't live in the part of Manhattan where they put congestion pricing in. But where I live, people crossing the George Washington Bridge, it's a common thing. People get out at that subway stop and they meet somebody there who's driving across and be like, hey, can I get a ride with you? And so they all do that because heading into New Jersey free heading out of New Jersey, you got to pay like fifteen dollars on the bridge. And so people regularly stand outside the bridge and be like, hey, get in my car. I'll drive you across and we'll split the fare, um, wow. which makes sense um, because there's no subway across where up here. Well, there, <laughs> other, there are other things to think about, too, which is that with if you have the uh, congestion price area, you have a lot of disincentives for people to drive into uh, the city. People are going to fill up the vehicles a lot more. Uh, 
I mean, even this extends to commercial traffic. I think if you were to look at all of the tractor trailers coming into New York City, you'd find a lot of them are only partially full. They're, you know, uh, if you had incentives to fill them up all the way, they would probably do that, right? Just as you're talking about with the cars, people, right. people filling up the cars to get across the bridge and splitting the fee. So I think, you know, from my perspective, it's all good because I don't have to drive to New York City every day. <laughs> Neither do I. I just want to come here. It would be interesting to see some of this happen in smaller cities as well. I've seen um, no uh, no evidence at all of smaller cities or medium-sized cities looking at congestion pricing or even trying to redesign their cities for uh use of alternative transportation systems. The nearest small city to me has got bike lanes on some of the roads, but then they just end, you know, and people, people, <laughs> you know, you've got to have a system that lets people get from A to B, not from A to A prime. Brad uh, lives in a Shell Silverstein poem. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so anyway, those are, those are my thoughts on congestion pricing. Uh, Copenhagen's a beautiful city. I encourage anybody who can to go there and, and see how it can really work if people are dedicated to the idea that you are not a slave to the automobile and that, uh, you know, the way that you live and your access to beauty and peace and happiness is important to the city planners. Fred pushing Copenhagen. Next, he's going to push free health care and free education. I don't know why he hates America. Uh, let's go into Recall Roundup. Strap in. Time for the Recall Roundup. This week, we've got a, a couple of them. Uh, Jeep Coil Springs. Oh, boy, oh, boy, oh, boy. Uh, let's see. Potentially 331,000-plus vehicles. This is for the 2022 to 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee, which I love the fact that body style SUV. Uh, the real coil spring may not be correctly installed, allowing the coil spring to come out of position. Uh, is this going to hurt me or others or just make my car look bouncy? It is probably going to do all three if the worst case scenario happens, right? Uh So the the coil spring looks like, looks like a big cartoon spring that you'd see. So I think that, uh, there was a warning in this one because there's a potential for these springs to become disengaged from the vehicle and basically fly, fly off and hit bystanders or pedestrians who are around when it happens and it appears to happen at somewhat random time so beyond that um it's an important part of your vehicle suspension and you know you're definitely going to have some handling issues when 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 this occurs so that was about you know 330,000 jeeps um jeep grand cherokees so that's one to look out for if you do own one of those vehicles and you know, it looks looks like they opened an investigation into a 2023 vehicle in March and have wrapped it up with a recall um, in a couple of months. So that's a good job by Jeep, as opposed to what we usually do here, which is bang them over the head with the bad jobs they do. Or the spring. Mercedes, 8,281 Mercedes-Benz EQS 450. Oh, the 450, please. That's for the poor. Uh, this is a hybrid electric car. Uh, let's see. The, it's been hidden. 
Due to a deviation in the development process, oh, that's never a good start for a software problem. Due to a deviation in the development process, the electric drivetrain software may improperly respond in the invented in the event of a detected fault at a specific plug connector within the electric drive. Uh, what? Get it. Analog versus digital. Analog versus. <laughs> so we've talked about validation of software, and uh, validation of software always assumes that the analog parts of it are working properly. And this this is a. Not. This is not that case, though. This is a case where an, an analog input, which is a connector, uh, isn't properly considered by the the software itself. So they would have to have injected a a, def, a, uh, a fault into the system that says, well, I've lost this connection and the signal is going through this connection in order to do the validation of their, of their software and the response. This is the kind of thing that only comes up with experience and with uh, some time of you know hardware in the loop and testing that really replicates real world conditions. So it's a very difficult kind of thing to detect in advance and uh, good for them for identifying this and working on the uh, working on the fix. And uh, how many exciting. how many vehicles? Sorry? <laughs> you were really excited. Analog versus digital. Analog versus digital. <laughs> How many vehicles? It was... Uh, 8,200. 8,281. The 2022-23 Mercedes-Benz EQS450 colored blue. Now, it doesn't matter your paint color. Get this fixed. Um, you know, have some engineer with a pocket protector, dweeb glasses, just plug in the connector, and that solves it. Now... My anti anti geekite. Last one. <laughs> uh, Ford. I think we I think we did touch on this one briefly last week, but this is an update. This is for over one hundred twenty five thousand twenty twenty to twenty twenty three Ford Escapes, Ford Mavericks, and twenty twenty one to twenty three Lincoln Corsair vehicles. Uh, this is effective vehicles that have two and a half liter uh, hybrid electric or plug in electric vehicles, and uh, Basically, what are they saying here? Uh, the Ford advises customers to safely park and shut off the engine as quickly as possible if they hear unexpected engine noises, lose power, or see or smell smoke. This is just another cartoon recall. Like, does the car yeah. also go, Aruga. This is actually, you know, I, I, I wanted to point this one out because it's kind of a new warning from that. So we, we, we see a lot of park outside um, and occasionally do not drive uh warnings from nitsa but this is one i wish they'd had a few years back when we were looking at, well there's the problem's still ongoing but when we were looking into the hyundai uh kia fires because this is exactly the type of scenario that we were seeing there people were their vehicles were catching fire while they were driving in many cases they didn't even know uh and were alerted by other drivers to the fact their car is on fire um, but it was the similar situation where you need to pull over quick and particularly if you have you know occupants in the vehicle um everybody's got to be, be able to get out of the car in time because once you know in this case i believe there's fuel vapor involved um that's a that's a pretty quick quick fire and that creates a, a need to egress from the vehicle as fast as you can do we know what the cause of this is Oh, I think it was there was an engine failure and there's the possibility that when the engine fails, it's going to release 
uh, either oil or fuel vapor into areas that of the engine or the under the hood where there are ignition sources, so causing a fire. Hmm. Okay, well, that's one vote for removing everything from underneath the hood. If it's not there, it can't catch on fire. Make it a front. Yeah. Maybe that's why they need such big hoods on these cars or these pickup trucks. I don't know. There's got to be a reason for that. Yeah. Well, these are all, oh, these are, these are the kind of, yeah, the Ford Maverick is like their smaller truck. The Ford Escape is like their mini SUV, right? And I have no idea what a Lincoln Corsair is, but if it's a Lincoln, I think these are probably all the 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 Mercury Ford. Well, it's not even a Mercury. The Maverick. I don't know what a Maverick is. I guess that's a. Um, I think it's a small truck, or it's a. Um, a, a I'd replace the Ranger, kind of the Ranger size truck. I don't know. Maybe. That's what it looks like. If you have these vehicles, get it fixed. Get it fixed. The fix is what free why because it's a recall who recalled it the government who the government how dare they make me get things that are dangerous fixed for free i know well they won't make you unfortunately right but you should because it's free and you're like ah shaking your fist at the government ah you know but hey look at this you get something for free it's not free it's wasting my afternoon where i could be sitting around drinking beer and staring at my feet i don't know if people do that well it also may save your life it may in Germany, they take well. your license plates away if you don't get a recall. Just keep that in mind, folks. Wait, in Germany, they take your license plates away if you don't get a recall? Yes. Oh. You have to get your recalls performed or they send someone to your house and bye-bye your ability to drive. So. Oh, I love it. I love it. One vote can you imagine Can you imagine putting that system into play in America? You know the guys who repo cars? Oh. The, just the, the You see people shooting at people in driveways all the time these days, right? Just... For nothing. And can you imagine someone from the recall police force coming to take your tags off your vehicle? Oh. We would probably have more people dying from that practice than we would in the in the vehicles. Who knows? <laughs> well, hey. Let's well, I would like to solicit our readers' help. We've tried to coin two phrases here in this episode. One is uh, Anthony's phrase, anti-geekite, which I think is <laughs> has a lot of legs on it. The other was my phrase, uh, total bullshit. Yeah. So, uh, I, you know, if, if readers could just send a note and let us know which of those you prefer or your own suggestion of a coinable phrase, uh, be glad to hear from you. Hey, I think you just saved me a lot of brain power because that's going to be the name of this ex- episode. Total <laughs> bullshit or anti-geekite. Wonderful. <laughs> uh, Kyle from Cruz, let us know what you vote for. Hey, hey, listeners, thanks for uh, listening again. Thank you for donating. If you didn't donate, shame, 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 shame. And, well, you can keep listening for free. Um, that's hilarious. I sang that, and now Zoom asked me, are you playing music? No, that was not musical at all. So thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with uh, more recalls, more Tower Fred, more dumb things that Tesla did. How do I know? Do I know the future? No, I know Tesla. So thanks, listeners. Bye. Thanks, you. Bye-bye. For more information, visit www.autosafety.org.